0: please be seated. This week we have, or I have, the passage for you in your bulletin. There'll be several passages I refer to. Advent is an opportunity, really, to marvel afresh at God's accomplished plan of redemption. Each year, the church calendar designates a month for singing, for reading, preaching, celebrating God's sending His Son to become man for our salvation. And no matter what is happening in our lives at the time Advent comes, whatever's happening in the world around us, it always helps to have a slight pause to reflect on Christ coming to Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. This encourages us with perspective that we need. This is the only time of the year that we pause the current expositional preaching series to consider a more general biblical topic or theme. This year, I'm taking my cue from a powerful statement written by Paul in Galatians 4, verse 4. The statement is this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. The phrase, the fullness of time. This has to do with God's orchestrating events over the course of centuries to bring about particular monumental events. Now, it's not just the monumental event, though. Literally millions of actions were planned and carried out leading to the exact hour of God's appointment for Christ's birth, among other monumental events. When the fullness of time had come. This describes the culmination of myriads in myriads of divinely appointed movements that needed to happen, for Christ to be born. When we are talking about God orchestrating things like this, and people like this, and actions like this, we are now talking about God's providence. In meditating on biblical examples of God's providence, especially for this next month, I trust that it will lift us a bit from the moment in which we live and provide perspective. For the coming days and years. So I'll begin with Abraham. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider through the lens of Providence Joseph, and then Ruth, and then Esther and Christmas Eve, Jesus Himself. So it's through the lens of Providence that we'll look at these important biblical figures. I'll start by reading Genesis twelve, one through four. This is God's promise and plan come to light, a pivotal passage in the whole of the Bible spoken now to Abram at the time, who becomes Abraham, and, of course, Sarai, who becomes Sarah. Hear God's holy word, Genesis 12, 1 through 4. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred "'and your father's house to the land that I will show you, "'and I will make of you a great nation, "'and I will bless you and make your name great, "'so that you will be a blessing.'" I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, as we begin a month of contemplation and meditation on your hand of providence, which guides people in events, and it guided people in events to the point of bringing Christ, please bring us encouragement as well as new or refreshed insight. We are often caught in the moments of our lives and need to be challenged to look up and see what you have done in our doing. I pray for the encouragement of your people this day as we meditate on the life of Abraham through the lens of providence. Lord, guide us, direct us, encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not too much to say that Genesis 12 is a pivotal passage, not only in the life of Abraham, but in the life of God's people, in the world for that matter. Genesis 12 contains God's promise and plan that would be worked through Abraham. Genesis 12 is a commitment on the part of God to do a great work of redemption through Abraham. There's nothing about Genesis 12 that leaves us to guess that God was partially committed to this promise and to this plan. Uh, Reading it, you know that he is going to make it come to pass. And, of course, we know on this side of history that he did what he promised through Abraham. God works his plan of redemption through his providence in the lives of people that aren't too dissimilar to you or to me. Now, when I keep using the word providence and you hear it used, what is meant by it? This is important. It's a biblical theme that really oozes through all of the scriptures. In our Westminster Confession does a great job, with many minds applied to it over many years, to quantify what the Bible teaches about God's providence, divine providence. Listen to what is said. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least. By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. So providence is God actually working out his sovereign will. We think of his plan or his predestined plan, His sovereign will that will come to pass. But providence is personal. It's intentional. It's intimate with all things that are created. Predestination may be the plan, or we think of the plan when we think of that term. Providence is the exercise of that plan in history by God Himself personally and mindfully. Providence has to do with God's hand on creatures, actions, and things to guide his plan to come to pass. You know, the confession has a long section about this, but there's one short statement that I will alert you to that will help us think of this biblical concept of God's providence. It states as the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to their good. This connects with the prayer that Galen wrote, that Jeremy prayed, when he quotes from Romans 8, where it says, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's God's providence on display in a well-known passage. His providence is personal and it's particular. While it extends to all things, because it has to, it especially concerns itself with the well-being of those that he has redeemed through his beloved Son. So starting this morning, through the lens of providence, let's consider some key biblical figures. Abraham, Joseph, Ruth, Esther, and Jesus. Beginning today with Abraham. Now, I won't assume you know all there is to know about Abram any more than I do, so I'll just do a thumbnail sketch and then alert you to some key passages that help us recognize the place of God's providence in Abraham's life as a way of considering his providence in a practical way in all of our lives and in the life of the church. Abraham, first called Abram. He lived 2,000 years before Jesus came. Think back in the biblical timeline, Adam and Eve fall into sin, and right upon their fall, Jesus or God pronounces the one who will come and crush the serpent's head. He pronounces the Messiah will eventually come to undo the work of Satan. Then, in preserving that seed, he preserves Noah and his family. Even though the earth deserved to be destroyed, he preserves Noah and brings forth the seed continuing after Noah. And then we are introduced to Abram. Pretty early on, Genesis chapter 12. I will make you a great nation, he speaks to this man, Abram. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a promise and what a plan to unfold. In the Bible, the story of that plan unfolding. That through Abraham, all tribes, tongues, and nations would be blessed with the knowledge of Christ, to come to Christ, bid invited to come to Jesus. This would be the great nation, the great spiritual nation that Abraham would actually oversee. Members from all over the world, more than there could be numbered, grains of sand on the sea. Abram, when he was called, was just your rank-and-file pagan unbeliever. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees, which is where modern Iraq is now. You know, when you think of Abraham, if you're like me, if I just mention Abraham, there are usually two main highlights that come to mind. And they're highlights. That's how I think of Abraham's life. And there's good reason for that. The first one is, God meets him and calls him to leave and go to a place that he could not look up on the internet and see what it was like to find homes in that real estate market. He didn't know what he was going to, yet God gave him this calling and he answered the calling and he went. So we celebrate that that he listened to God's call and did this amazing thing by picking up everything and leaving. He goes all the way from our modern day Iraq and walking in caravan all the way to where modern day Israel is now or Canaan in those days. And he does this and he follows God's plan. That's the first thing we think of. The second thing is usually when God, after many, many years of promise, finally delivers this old man and this old woman, their own son. And then God tells him to go sacrifice the son. And Abram listens, and he does it. These two marks of faith, and that's usually what we think of. In fact, it makes sense to us because the author of Hebrews, when summarizing Abraham, for all there can be said about Abraham, whose life spans some 13 chapters in Genesis, summarizes Abraham this way. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that, was, that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And he says of Sarah by, Sarah, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him, as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The highlights of Abraham's life are highlighted by the author of Hebrews. In most of us, we think of Abraham, that's what we go to. And I don't know about you, but that's a bit intimidating for believers that these figures are put on this seeming pedestal, even by the biblical authors, and we fail to sometimes recognize the very important place of God's providence to work these highlights in this man's life. Yes, he's seen as a hero of the faith for sure. God's promise and plan was demonstrably fulfilled through Abraham. But we should not be satisfied with a one-dimensional view of Abraham. That won't help us as much as we need the help to connect with another sinner, another redeemed sinner called by God. Not suggesting that we have callings on the same level as Abraham, but if God's providence is what the confession describes, and I believe they do a great job of capturing all of what is said about this, there's more for us to gain in looking at Abraham's life through providence. The truth is, Abraham was very inconsistent in his faith and his obedience to God. That's the full story about Abraham. I'm not trying to bring him down in your minds. I'm just trying to give us biblical clarity about his life and that I promise will help all of us better appreciate the place of God's providence, especially with all the many things we don't understand that happen individually and collectively. Abraham's walk of faith wavered. Abraham had fears that he fell into. Abraham was impatient with the plan that God gave. He tried to do his own thing, to press ahead of God. Abraham had family problems galore. They were problems that were relentless in his personal life. Constant discomfort surrounded him with his family relationships something we pass over quickly in the text, but if you have any relationship that's complicated in your life, and I bet most people do, imagine a number of these every day. But in God's providence, he also grew to do the things God had placed for him to do. There's a lot between the highlights. Yes, he's considered a hero of the faith. But when we want to derive some practical guidance from what we see about God's providence in Abraham's life, we have to dig in a little bit deeper. It turns out, brothers and sisters, that Abraham was more average than you may realize, which should come to some relief, as some relief. His walk was more common than you might have thought. The amazing story about Abraham is not so much his faith and obedience typified in those two high points. The amazing story or feature of Abraham is how God used a wavering follower to carry out his plan. In fact, the use of such a one was his plan. You might say, and I think it's correct to say, that Abraham's inconsistency in following God's plan as it was revealed to him was God's plan. We'll see how this unfolds when we consider a few features of Abraham's life the less highlighted ones to some degree. First of all, recognize in Abraham's life that at least in two major ways, he fell to his fears and was driven by his fears more than he was the promises of God. The very first instance happens in the same chapter where he receives this monumental promise from God about his plan to make him a great nation and bless earth through him. After hearing this, He heads up to Canaan, as he's told. He's not in Canaan long, and a famine strikes. His faith is tested, and he thinks, I've got to go find food. Let's go down to Egypt to find food, the common place to do so. Where it was and what it could grow, oftentimes it was famine-proof. So he heads to Egypt. In Genesis 12, the second half, listen to the great hero of the faith in what he does. Now there is a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, and then they'll kill me. But they'll let you live. Say you're my sister. That'll go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. The great hero of the faith, honey, put your neck out for me here. I don't want to die. I'm scared of Pharaoh. I know the promises of God. I know what he said. But Pharaoh, in my mind right now, is stronger than God, and I'm scared. So do me a favor. Put your life on the line for me, beloved wife, whom I love so much. Hey, say you're my sister. I don't care what they do to you. They just let me live. This is the truth. This is the the true Abraham struggling in his walk, wavering in his walk, where he would put his wife up like this. Of course, the story unfolds. Abram entered Egypt. The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. I mean, all sorts of bad things could have happened to his wife because he's scared, because he's fearful, and he lies. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you've done to me? Why did, you not te- why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? This suggests that he did do something. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and Go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. And Pharaoh was given plagues as a result of this. So much bad happened because he acted out of fear. He didn't trust the promises of God. He lied and brought despair to many people in the story. Now, here's the thing about Abraham. You would say, well, that's early. He's such a new believer. True, he is. No question about that. And we can recognize wavering. All of us struggle with wavering. Many years went by and many incredible events happened. Uh, Even to the point where he witnessed the destruction of, of a city that he allowed Abram to help rescue his nephew out of. He saw multiple renewals of the covenant from God verbally to him. Between chapter 12 and chapter 20, all sorts of amazing things happen in Abram's life to bolster God's promises and plan. He should be stronger in the faith now. And he comes to chapter 20, and now he has learned so much about God. And he should be ready to stand up to, to man, the fear of man, or the fear of him being harmed in some fashion. And we come to chapter 20. Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev. And lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And this is Genesis 20 now, just eight chapters later, but a lot's happened. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, "She's my sister." He does it again, fearful of man, fearful of harm to come upon him. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said, "Behold." You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against her, against me therefore I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He still brings discipline and judgment upon Abimelech and his people. Abraham, who knows the promises of God, the plan of God, has seen it work in amazing ways over the course of years between what happened with Pharaoh and now with Abimelech, yet he still acts out of fear. Brothers and sisters, sometimes We ignore God's clear promises that we know are true and we get scared and we speak against them or we act in ways that does not show we believe that God will preserve us or uphold us. Our fears can steer us to say or do things that we know are wrong because we're afraid of people. This happens commonly when we're with peers and we feel confronted, and it happens more and more these days, it feels like. I seem foreign what Jeremy read from nineteen eighty-three. Like if you said that now, there'd be a mockery that would happen, and there's a tendency. For Christians, is to be quiet in the, under those circumstances. We might stay quiet when we should speak up for fear of man, for fear of harm coming to us, people alienating us. We might think that lying about our allegiance would actually buy us safety or relief, as if safety or relief comes from people and not from man. In an effort to stay safe, we might lie or misrepresent who we really are as Christians. Abraham was very inconsistent in his walk of faith. We see this in his life. His fears are real and they're influential. I want you to notice something else about Abraham's life. Again, we're looking at the lens of God's providence, that he orders all things to come to pass. Along with his fears, Abraham's impatience played a major, major role in his life. Not a small role in his life, a major one. God had verbally communicated with Abraham on more than one occasion. In fact, two major occasions before the episode happens that I'll read next. He was told by God that Sarah and him would have their own son. But they grew impatient. Now I get it. They were old, past childbearing years. So it was hard for them to imagine. But God had done many other things. And they grew impatient with not having their own son. It seemed impossible that God could fulfill this promise. Maybe they heard him wrong. We're going to do what we need to do to fulfill this in our lives. That's what Abraham and Sarah practically come to. They were impatient with God's revealed plan. They couldn't wait for it, and they thought they could advance it their own way. In Genesis 16, the first few verses, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, you don't have to listen to Dr. Phil's take on this idea or Pastor Nathan's take, for that matter, to know this is a bad idea. It may be the custom, but it's not a godly custom, and it causes all sorts of problems. And no counselor would say this is a good idea. But, verse 3 of chapter 16, So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This impatient decision on the part of Abram Abraham caused untold amounts of grief for many people in his immediate life and then extending well beyond that. This impatient decision by Abraham set up a rivalry that has never ended. Abraham and Sarah thought they could help God's plan. They had good intentions maybe, but their impatience cost many people a great deal. Now, I have not said at any moment that this is not part of God's providence, but their life and their living of these things came to feel much of the weight of their lack of faith and disobedience, their impatience. Now, most of us probably know a thing or two about impatience and its consequences. It seems like impatience with God's promises and plans are a regular area of wavering for us Christians. God's promises and plans are clear, but we plow ahead trying to do things our own way, charting our own course that we think will get us there a little quicker, maybe more efficiently. We're impatient with others, so we press upon them in a way that can be damaging, so they become what we think they should become quicker. This is a classic problem with us parents. We're impatient with where we think our children should be, completely ignoring where we were, but that doesn't matter. It's where they are. They're not where they need to be, and we're impatient with them. Sometimes spouses are impatient with where their spouse is in progress. How about this area? God sets up his design for the marriage relationship. There's a certain amount of waiting that has to take place as you're searching for that person God has for you as a spouse. We become impatient with that process and that plan, and we plow ahead, partaking of things that are meant for the marriage relationship, designed for the marriage relationship, and that when not used inside of that, cause actual great damage. And it's impatience that often drives us to this place. Gets us into all sorts of trouble. How about we see something we just want to own? So rather than waiting, evaluating, and saving, we buy it with money that we don't have and we're strapped. For years, and patience brings much pain. It's a cause for wavering in our walk, and Abraham knew it well. In fact, there's another area I want to point out to you that stems from this area of impatience, but it can be applied more generally. It's an area that doesn't fit the Abraham as hero of the faith narrative in his family life as well. Abraham had some serious family troubles. Now, by the way, if there's anyone who doesn't have fears. If you don't have impatience or family troubles, you didn't need to be listening to any of this. I should have told you that before. But for the rest of us, let's come back to the passage and see these family troubles that were significant in Abraham's life. His family dysfunction, it happened as a result of his impatient choices for sure, but we can see them compounding. And it unfolds right in the text. Listen to Genesis 16 after Hagar has Ishmael and she looks Sarah looks at Hagar with contempt. Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. Now remember, Sarah's the one who suggested this. Now she's upset towards Hagar. This wrong be done to me is your fault and all of it should be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. So this thing caused a problem because now Hagar thinks she has She has you and you're my husband and you could just sense the discomfort and the dysfunction in how this is going to be established for years. There's not anything that's going to solve this in any immediate way. It's going to bring lots of pain, lots of agony. But Abram said to Sarai, you know, let's think about this. Let's sit down. Let's analyze it biblically. What can we do to it? No. Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant's in your power. Do whatever you want with her. He just makes it worse. His management of this family situation is even worse. Total messed up family situation. Sarai then dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Think of all the pain and agony in relationship now because of stepping out of God's plan for marriage. Abram takes Hagar. Hagar has a child, and now all these two women are are abused in this sense. They're, They're mistreated they're alienated, they're struggling with any kind of security or connection with their husband, and then a child's born who will never know that same connection or the connection he should have with his father, and it's a complete mess. Abraham had an unhappy wife for good reason. She felt Abraham divided his love for her and with Hagar discontentment, anger, just so much wrapped up in these relationships. And all of us can imagine, maybe in your own life or in lives that you are connected with, just how much dysfunction enters our lives this side of the fall. Who doesn't have brokenness in their family? Who does not have broken family relationships? Does anyone here not understand dysfunction in family relationships? Who among us would not go back to undo some family relationship issue if you could? Does anyone ever second-guess their parenting? Anyone regret how they treated their parents? How many wish that they had done something different as parents? How many wish they spoke more words of love and appreciation for loved ones who are now departed? You can't say anything to them now. Any regrets about your family life? Now, let's let's recap for a moment. Abraham, the great hero of the faith, the one through whom God fulfilled his promises and redemptive plans— was very inconsistent in his walk. He acted out of fear. He acted out of impatience. And his family life was a mess. Can anyone relate? But here's what God's providence teaches us. Abraham's inconsistency in these areas, his inconsistency in following God's plan, was God's plan. How how is this so? How is this encouraging? Through these very issues that Abraham dealt with, He was humbling in readying Abraham for the thing that he called him to is that big event. To go and to lay his son down. None of this happens to Abram if he just goes about his way. If Genesis 12 happens and he's called, and then the next thing he's laying down his son, that's not how life works. God's called you to some amazing, important things in your life, and they're not important the way the world might say they are. They could be through pain, through much turmoil. But the things he's bringing you through, your fears, your impatience, the messed up family life you have, that's all part of God's humbling us to bring us into a place of deeper dependence upon what God has for us. That's when we rely upon him, when we're really brought to the end of ourself. When we pray that prayer, Lord, I don't know what to pray about any of these things because I'm still scared. I want stuff faster, and I can't get right with this person. That feeling of helplessness, perfect. Now... From that place, God uses us. Those things are not a sign of God not having his hand on you. Quite the opposite. We note Abraham's growth. In Genesis 22, some years later, and he didn't arrive at perfection in Genesis 22, but we have the sum total of all these events working themselves out in his life. A humbled Abraham finally has this beloved son, Isaac. He's had several years with him. He's a boy. Some of the best years you can have with your kids, by the way, in these early years, this dependence they have on you and the relationship you have. And then God says in Genesis 22, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You know Abraham had to be thinking of a way out of this. Is there some other way? Is there any going back in his life? Perhaps he's analyzing the times that he tried to do things other than what God said. Maybe this is what God is using now to bind his heart to God's will and move him forward. Then Isaac said to his father Abraham, which had to hurt even more, my father, here I am, son, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham does not say this in Genesis 12. He says it in in Genesis 22. Through much, When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bound Isaac, his son, and lay him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Here I am. You have providentially brought me to this place, God. Here I am. What else do you say after your fears and your impatience and your family matters? They work you over. They open you up to who who we are apart from God. When we don't trust God, here I am. The inconsistencies in Abraham's walk were all part of the humbling process that was necessary for him to grow in faith. By the time Abraham came to Mount Moriah with Isaac, He was not the same Abraham who lied to Pharaoh about Sarah. And brothers and sisters, wherever you are, I promise you, you are not here now where you were five years ago or ten years ago. Now, some of you may still be in a place where you're trying to do it your own way, but you're God's child. He's not going to forsake you like he didn't forsake Abraham. There will be consequences that come from these decisions we make, but they are part of God's providential workings. All of it is. He was by no means perfected by Genesis 22, that's for sure. But he was ready to wait on God after years of wavering and struggling and being inconsistent. Abraham had many missteps in his life. We can all relate with this. But they were, in themselves, actually part of the plan God had for him. Along the crooked road that Abraham traveled, there were many steps backward. But growth happened. The growth was in his trust in God's promises. That's what God's most concerned with. It's not cleaning up your life, polished so it looks just perfect. It's that you rest in Him more, whatever that takes. That's where peace actually comes. God's plan for each of us includes our inconsistencies and our inabilities. Laced with Abraham's many failures were his were constant statements of God's renewed covenant with him. In Genesis twelve, we hear the covenant, and then he lies in Genesis twelve. Then he sends Melchizedek, this priest representing Christ to give him his blessing. He restates his promise in Genesis 15. But in Genesis 16, Abraham plows ahead with his own plan with Hagar. Genesis 17, God promises him again, I'll make you a great nation. He helps Abraham intercede for a lot at Sodom. Yet in Genesis 20, Abraham lies again about Sarah, and then Genesis 22, finally, now Abraham's ready. And he takes Isaac for sacrifice, which is the ultimate picture of God himself giving his only son in a location not too far away from Mount Moriah itself. All of us should take heart with God's providence that exacts his plan, which includes your mistakes and your mishaps. Your fears are taken into account by God as he works his plan in your life. Your impatience with God's promises are in some way known to him, Part of his providential outworking of all things. Your family failures have not thwarted God's will like you might think. God's plan for your family, by the way, is not that it wins an award for the Brady Bunch cohesion uh, for happiness and harmony as it might be pictured. God's plan is for you and yours to trust him fully, however, he brings about that trust. We should be encouraged to know that we are living out God's plan despite our fears, our impatience, and our family troubles. And know this for sure. Trust in God's grace and provision is what he's called us to. It's never depended on our faithfulness. It's never depended on our courage. It's never depended on our patience. It's never depended on our family perfection. These are all things God works in us to be more faithful, to trust him more. There's a group today a modern group that sings worship songs and they do a tremendous job with their lyrics. They're very biblically and theologically accurate and therefore edifying, city alight. They wrote a song called All My Ways Are Known to You. It's a bit of a celebration that God knows all of our ways, yet he loves us and he's guiding us and directing us. In some fashion, it connects to this whole concept of providence. I finish with these words from their song. In days of peace, in days of rest, in times of loss and loneliness. Though rich or poor, your word is true, that all my ways are known to you. No trial has come beyond your hand, no step I walk beyond your plan. The path is dark outside my view, still all my ways are known to you. And oh, what peace that I have found, wherever I may be. For all my ways are known to you. Hallelujah, they are known to you. Open my eyes so that I may see that you have made these ways for me. Open up my eyes so that I may see that you, my God, will walk with me. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, all of us can recall episodes of fear and impatience informing us more than your promises. We can relate with Abraham's messed-up family situation and are reminded of our failures in this arena. Yet, Lord, your word is clear about your hand of providence upon your children. Help us to look upon our inconsistencies and be humbled. Help us to look upon our weaknesses and go to you with them. Make us to fully rest upon you, having no confidence in our flesh. Lord, we know it's true. Your providence reaches to all creatures, but in a special manner. It takes care of us, your children, through Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Let's together turn to sing.